text to which I would like to turn our attention this evening is Luke chapter 2. Gospel of Luke chapter 2. This is the season of the year that carries a special place in our imaginations. It evokes certain feelings in our hearts. We sing songs about the cattle peacefully lowing and the baby quietly sleeping. We have images in our heads or on the TV of snuggling warmly next to a fire and being surrounded by children contentedly playing quietly underneath the tree. Everything is picture perfect. The night indeed is silent, so we sing over and over again. The peace of the season clearly pervades all of creation. And then we wake up. And we remember that life is not like a Thomas Kincaid painting or a Hallmark movie channel. The bills are piling up. The children are bickering. The car needs a new starter. Your coworker is still gossiping about you. Your family member is still mad at you for what you said last Christmas. And all these things add up to give you a profound feeling, not of Christmas peace, but of crippling anxiety, restlessness. Rather than being filled with goodwill towards men, we feel guilty because we have bitterness, anger, even vengeful thoughts that linger in our minds. We are dominated by disquieted hearts, wrapping it up, that wrap up every feeling. And we have all of those feelings at once, except peace, the peace of God. But the Bible provides for us a key to true peace. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with our fellow man. And tonight's text will set the tone for the ministry of Jesus, which is the only lasting solution for peace in this very unpeaceful world. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, and I will read the first 21 Verses, But we will be focusing particularly on the message of the angels. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find him find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, even now, with restless, anxious, um, troublesome hearts, Lord, we pray that you would show us more of Christ, that we might know more of your peace, that you would quiet our anxious hearts, which were made to only find rest in you. Speak to us, O Lord, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. I told you that we would focus on the message, the good news of gospel peace. So let's jump straight to verse 11. Verse 11. And I want to examine their statement bit by bit, piece by piece. And the first part of the phrase in verse 11 is for unto you. The beginning of their proclamation is for unto you. This message from the angelic host was initially given to a bunch of shepherds out in the field. It was not sent to the chief priests. Not to the scribes, not to the rulers, not to the kings, but to stinky, dirty, lowly shepherds out in the fields. And such is the usual method of our great God, to come to the lowly with a great and glorious message. He goes after the Jacobs that are working in the tents, not the big and powerful Esau's out doing the impressive hunting. He calls Moses while he is tending Laban's flocks, not while he is a member of the house of Pharaoh ruling in Egypt. He calls David while he was out in the position of a shepherd, not while he was performing in a musical hall and not while he was in a military post. He goes after those that the world deems weak, lowly, of ill repute, those who have nothing to contribute, indeed nothing but their praises to add to his own glory. And God has come to many, indeed all of us, that way as well. He has come to us with a great message of salvation. Not many of us were rich and wise in the eyes of the world. Not many of us were eloquent and of noble stature, to use a Pauline saying. Many of us were stained. Indeed, all of us were soiled in our sin. And you might hear this message tonight and consider yourself like one of the shepherds, out in the field, surrounded by nothing but darkness and loneliness. You may feel that your sins have made you offensive, smelly, like a shepherd, altogether unlovely and certainly unlovable. Well, be encouraged that none of you is outside of God's love tonight. Indeed, the first step in cherishing God's love is to recognize that we are indeed unlovely, but that He is lovely. And indeed, He wants to love the unlovely. We must understand our need for the good news before we can appreciate God's good news. And the first part of God's good news tonight is that He has come. For unto us the message begins. Not unto them, not unto the rich, not unto the powerful, the noble, the lovely, but unto you, unto me. Unto the lowly shepherds, for unto you the message begins. The message continues, for unto you is born, is born. The next step of God's good news is the proclamation that the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has been born. The eternal Son of the Father, the one through whom the world is created, who is is present in every location, unbound by the limits of space, He indeed has bound Himself to a limited human flesh. 
The one who keeps the sun spinning in his orbit is now united with the frailty of human body and lying in a manger. He's taken on real flesh, flesh like me and you, flesh that can bleed, that can feel pain, and that indeed can die. Imagine the all-powerful, immortal God of creation takes on the potentiality of death. This is an unbelievable miracle. Indeed, the most miraculous thing in the Bible. Because more than once in the Bible is someone brought back from the dead. But only once has God united himself with his creation. Unto you is born, the message says. Consider the condescension of the son. How willing he was, how low he was willing to stoop on our behalf. How much comfort and ease he was willing to forego. For us, and how much pain and agony he was willing to endure. What love must there be in his heart for his people, for him to be willing to undertake such a mission? What compassion must exist within him to move him to such depths for those that were estranged from him? Such is the heart of our great God to be willing to send his own son so low that he be willing to stoop so deeply into the mire to save for himself a people of his own possession. Unto you is born. The message continues. For unto you is born this day. This day. This was a real day. It was not a myth, not a made-up fiction, not a superstitious tradition passed down by sages and gurus that miraculously found it later. This was a real day. A day when Caesar Augustus was emperor and Quirinius was the governor of Syria. This was a historically verifiable time in history. Our faith has an objective character to it, unlike some other religions that are built off stories and fairy tales that have no basis in reality. Our faith has an objective basis. A day. A day in which the Son of God was born. And this day was the greatest of days. This day heralded the birth of the one that would split time. His birth is the focal point of all of history. His birth was planned before history began and was the providential fruit of God protecting the chosen seed of the woman through the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For him. For his appearance. For the day of his coming. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born under, born of a woman, born under the law. It happened on a day, this day, in the fullness of time. For unto you is born this day. But He continues, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. It was not merely that a real day was chosen, but a real place, the city of David. It was not Narnia, It was not Atlantis or Asgard or Mount Olympus. It was a real city, Bethlehem, six miles from Jerusalem, where Jesse lived, the father of David, the great king of Israel. Bethlehem, the city about which Micah prophesied in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It happened in a real city. Just like Montgomery, or Prattville, or Wetumpka. Born this day in the city of David. And who was this that was born in the city of David? Well, the next part will tell us that he was a Savior, a Messiah, and a Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. 
The angels proclaim this baby to be a savior. And that implies that somebody needs saving. And that somebody is everybody. You see, God had already sent one out into the world. He made Adam, put him into the garden, sent him there, and gave him a task. But Adam failed to obey God's command. And by doing so, he plunged the whole world into sin, into bondage and slavery to our own sinful natures, and put the whole created order in disarray, in unrest. The world was no longer at peace with God, and we were at enmity with Him and with each other. And this brokenness is all around us. I don't have to illustrate it too much, but just as one comical example, every year we begin the Christmas season, right, at Thanksgiving. And you finish your your turkey meal, you sit down, you fall asleep watching some terrible football, and you wake up just in time for the evening news to see how many people were trampled at Walmart trying to get a sale on a TV. Those formerly thankful people are now trampling people to save some money. That's not peace. Brokenness, unrest, disorder is all throughout society, all throughout creation. But this brokenness is within us as well. And when we sit quietly, maybe when you lay your head down at night, you feel it too. You know that things aren't the way that they should be. We feel bad when we yell at our children or when we speak sharply to our spouse, to our friend. When we're jealous of somebody else's toy or or their car or whatever else. We often have this low-level guilt that just follows us around like a fog. But the angels pronounce that this one that is born is a savior, a soter, a rescuer, a preserver, one that saves. This language is loaded with Old Testament imagery. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word for Savior is used a couple of times in Judges to refer to the man that God raised up to save the people of Israel. But most often the language is reserved for God Himself. For example, in Psalm 79, 8 and 9, the author says, Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are desperate and in need. Help us, God our Savior. For the glory of your name, deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. Similarly, Micah chapter 7 has a glorious promise for God's people. It says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. The guilt that we have can be erased because we have a Savior that has earned our pardon. This anxiety that we feel can be removed because we have a Savior that has promised us only security. And the bitterness that we feel can be dissolved because we have a Savior that has promised only good for us. The enmity that we have by nature that's a barrier between us and God can be broken down because we have a Savior whose work on our behalf not only earned us pardon, but has earned earned for us adoption into God's very own household for all of eternity. The one who was born this day is a Savior. But He's not only a Savior, He's also a Messiah. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ. And Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one, the chosen one, the one that has been set apart for a specific task, a specific calling to be the faithful Son of God that would redeem His people. If the title Savior emphasizes the effects of Christ's work, that is, He saves us, then the title Messiah might be said to emphasize the means through which he fulfills that saving. 
The Messiah is the one who was to stand in the place of his people, to offer a substitute sacrifice, to be the mediator, to be the go-between between sinful man and a holy God. This Christ is the long-awaited, long-predicted one that would finally be the prophet, priest, and king that Israel needed. In him, all of the promises of God made throughout the ages will find their yes and their amen. He would bring about the peace that God had promised for so long, the peace that mankind desperately desired, the peace that each of us desperately desire. And he could do all of this because of his work as our Christ, our Messiah, our anointed one. You see, the enmity about which I spoke earlier, the enmity between us and God requires forgiveness. But more than that, it requires atonement. It requires a payment to make things right. If someone steals something from you, then that person is usually expected to make restitution. It means they're to repay you the thing that they stole. And this is a major part of what Christ has done for us. He has paid the debt that we owe to God. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our debt has been paid completely because he paid it. He stood in our place at the cross. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He completely zeroed out our outstanding balance. When Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished, he used a Greek transactional business term that indicates the debt has been paid in full. To Telestai, it is finished. The debt is gone. There is nothing left for us to pay. But even more than that, more than just leaving us with a zeroed out balance, he has given us his perfect righteousness with all the glorious riches that are attached to it. After having taken away our unrighteousness on the cross, he gives to us instead his perfect record of righteousness, such that when God looks at you, he only sees the perfections of his son. He doesn't see the sinner, all of the pain, all of the unrest in our hearts that, that used to be there. He sees his son's perfect righteousness. For those that believe there is no longer sinful you and me standing outside of God's presence, no, there is now you and me robed in Christ's holy righteousness, standing before God in his household for all of eternity. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ. We've seen that Christ would be a Savior, the one who would save his people. We've seen the means through which he would accomplish that saving. That is, he would be the Christ, the chosen Messiah. But the promised one of Israel would be more than a Savior. He would be more than the one who would lead his people out of slavery, just like Moses was a savior. He would be more than the one who saved his people from oppression, like the judges. And he would be more than the one who would save Israel from an arrogant Goliath, like or arrogant giant like Goliath. The savior would be God himself. He would be the Lord over all creation. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord the ruler, the sovereign, mighty God, everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us is born a child, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
This God is unstoppable in His power, immovable in His strength, and unshakable in His might. There is no defeating Him, no outsmarting Him, no outflanking Him. The Lord is our Savior, and there is nothing that can undo Him. And it is this knowledge that can give us peace in our souls. When you are afraid, remind yourselves of who God is. Who is your Savior? When my son wakes me up in the middle of the night to tell me he's had another nightmare, that's what I do. I ask him, what does the Bible say about God? About who God is? About what God can see? About how strong he is? And that's the same approach that we need to take when we are afraid. When we're afraid of the diagnosis, afraid of the bad news, afraid of being hurt again, of being rejected, of being left alone or being left out. Remind yourself of who God is. God is the eternal creator of all things who put the stars in the sky and holds all things in existence. He's the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who cares for the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. Is he not able to care for you as well? And if he's willing to sacrifice his own son for you, will he not give you everything that you need? That's exactly what Paul argues in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously give us all things? You're now his very own son or daughter. Will he not provide you with everything that you need? Clothe you when you are naked? Feed you when you are hungry? Be near to you when you are lonely? Of course he will. He's a good father. We need not be anxious and fearful because Christ the Lord has come down to us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We've looked at the content of this message of good, good news. Now let's keep moving and see the results of this good news. After telling the shepherds how to find Jesus in verse 12, we see in verse 13 that a multitude of heavenly hosts appears. That is, the whole sky is filled with angelic messengers. The host there is, ironically enough, a military term, and there's God using an army to declare peace. Let's file that away. That's a little bonus nugget there. Um, glory, and what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God's glory and our peace. The coming of this promised child will bring about the greatest revelation of God's glory in all of creation. And wherever this child is received will be peace among God's people. First, God is glorified because a child is born. And second, peace is spread everywhere that this child is received. John Piper once wrote that these are the greatest purposes for the coming of Jesus. Glory ever ascending from man to God and peace ever descending from God to man. God's glory sung out among men for the sake of his name. And God's peace lived out among men for the sake of his name. There's hardly a better way to summarize God's plan for redemption through Jesus Christ. He is glorified, and we get peace. He is made great, and we are made aright. He is treasured, and we are given pleasure. Verse 14 is interesting. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Which is a slightly cumbersome translation. Uh, the old King James, it's well known because of a lot of hymns, says, And peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Although most modern translations think that's not the best way to put it. Uh, NIV says, And on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
New American Standard says, Peace on earth, or on, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And ESV is similar. The point is that through that though the offer of peace is sent to all mankind, only God's people, that is those that will receive this child of peace, that will receive Christ and trust in him as Savior and Lord, only they will experience the peace that is promised. Only God's people of peace who receive the Son of peace will be able to experience God's peace. We see something similar in Luke chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Jesus tells his disciples, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. That is a universal offer of peace. And if a son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. God's offer of peace is offered to the whole world, but only the sons of peace will choose to receive it. How do we know if we are recipients of that peace? How do we know if we are sons of peace? If we are part of the angels' promise of peace among those with whom God is well pleased? If you receive Jesus... If you receive the peace-bringing Messiah as your Savior and Lord, then you are a son of peace. And when we are sons of peace, we experience the fruit of that peace in various ways. I'd like to close tonight with a list of many of the different areas in our lives that are changed by the peace of God. This list is expanded from some things that David Murray has written in the past. And it's not a short list, so I'm not concluding that soon. But I want you to see how the peace of Christ impacts so many parts of our lives, so many feelings of the soul that we can't help but have whole lives that are impacted by experiencing God's peace. So first, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of forgiveness instead of guilt. The peace of forgiveness instead of guilt. Forgiveness quiets the disturbing dread of just judgment for sin. That feeling in the pit of your stomach that you have when you know that you're guilty, when you've been caught, a feeling that we've all experienced, that feeling of dread can be replaced when we receive the peace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The knowledge that He has completely satisfied God's wrath and taken away our curse allows us to battle against the feeling of guilt that can so linger strongly in our hearts. And we can replace it with the peace of forgiveness. We can have the peace of forgiveness instead of guilt. Number two, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of friendship instead of fear. We can have the peace of friendship instead of fear. God used to be a terrifying enemy to us. He was at war with us and we were at war with him. We might not have known it, but that was the fact. He was not a benevolent father to us. He was a vengeful foe. And his white-hot wrath was poised to plunge us deep into eternal hell as a punishment for our sins. And that enmity produced fear within our hearts. But now he is our father, our good, loving, benevolent father. And even more than that, he becomes our friend through Jesus Christ. The fear of wrath that so crippled us can be replaced with peace that comes through genuine relationship with God. Friendship. Friendship that knows that we can do nothing to break that bond. Friendship that comes completely with open and non-judgmental communication. Friendship that's so satisfying and secure that all other earthly friendships can only pale in comparison. Imagine, 
Think about the best friendship that you have on earth. Your most loyal friend. That sweet relationship is a small shadow of the peace of friendship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Number three. When we come to faith, we have the peace of acceptance instead of rejection. Acceptance instead of rejection. Before faith, no matter how hard we tried to please, to please God, we were rightly rejected and resisted. God was both unwilling and unable to mingle with us in our sinfulness. We were alone in our fight, rejected by both God and man, and without hope for restoration or forgiveness. But after coming to faith, we are 100% accepted in Jesus Christ. The striving and the struggling is over. There is no more fighting and resistance. There is only acceptance. There's no more enmity and estrangement, only unity. There's no more brokenness and alienation, only intimacy. We have in Jesus the peace of acceptance instead of rejection. Number four, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of doing what I can instead of doing what I can't. Doing what I can instead of doing what I can't. I can stop trying to be a Martha, and I can enjoy being a Mary. Instead of spending my life rushed off my feet, busily going back and forth, trying to do everything I can, be the Messiah of my own little kingdom, I can instead have the peace of sitting calmly at Jesus' feet. Instead of busying myself to death, worried about all the things that I cannot do, I can cultivate a heart of peace that is content to serve God in the ways that He has gifted me. And, perhaps more importantly, I can trust that He is both glorified and satisfied with my meager works of service. Number five. When we come to faith, we can have the peace of God glorifying instead of self-seeking. We can have the peace of God glorifying instead of self-seeking. Without peace with God, we all sought to build up ourselves, to make for ourselves our own little personal towers of Babel, upon which we could climb to make ourselves great. We were driven by our own pride. But when we've been gripped by peace with God, we can give up on our self-promotion and aim only at God promotion. We no longer have a heart that clamors for attention and fame, a heart motivated by the praise of men, and instead we have a heart that screams, He must increase, I must decrease. Rather than being driven to hear the praise of men, we instead become driven by a desire to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we only get that through seeking to glorify God instead of seeking to glorify ourselves. We can have the peace of God glorifying instead of self-seeking. Number six, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of love instead of hate. The peace of love instead of hate. Before we were given new hearts in Christ, we were full of malice, of hatred, of ill will. We hated those that crossed us, those that have broken our hearts, those that are arrogant, those that annoy us, those that are enemies, those that take what we think belongs to us, fill in the blank. We will find any excuse under the sun to hate somebody. But in our hating, we are doing nothing but binding our own souls to the turbulence of a stormy heart. But because of the peace of God, 
Love can still that ugly storm and send gentle ripples of peace throughout your soul. Tranquility can dominate your once hate-filled soul once you have been changed by the peace of God in Christ. Number seven, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of peacemaking instead of vengeance-taking. We can have the peace of peacemaking instead of vengeance-taking. No longer do I have to get even, which is what the world will push you so hard to do. Vengeance is God, and I can give it all over to His repayment department. I can dissolve my bitter heart with the medicine of peace-bringing grace. My need for vengeance died on the cross when God's vengeance towards me was crucified on the back of His Son in my place. I no longer need revenge because I've been forgiven, which allows me to become a peacemaker just like Christ. Number eight. When we come to faith, we can have the peace of contentment instead of envy. We can have the peace of contentment instead of envy. When I never have enough, I am never at peace. Envy makes us full of unrest. Covetousness drives us to look for the next, the greater, the other, for the greener pastures on the other side of the fence, to never have contentment and peace with what we've been given. But when we come to God and we have peace with Him, we know that we have been provided everything that we could ever need in Jesus Christ. And that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, unfading, waiting for us in heaven. I can be content that God has the knowledge of my every need, the power to meet my every need, and the goodness to be inclined to meet my every need. When I am content, I can know the peace that passes understanding rather than having the unrest that always comes with envy. I can have the peace of contentment instead of envy. Number nine, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of presence instead of loneliness. The peace of presence with a C, not a T. Presence instead of loneliness. No matter how alone I am in this world, I never have to be lonely Because God is with me everywhere. The God of all peace has promised to be with me even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. My anxious heart of loneliness can be replaced with a heart full of the peace of His very presence. Indeed, when we're given new hearts, we are forever given the Holy Spirit. God's very Spirit is with us forever. With us to bless. Number 10. When we come to faith, we can have the peace of patience instead of impatience. The peace of patience instead of impatience. Impatience makes our souls fidgety. We sit at the red light and we fiddle with the steering wheel waiting for that green light to come. We tap our feet in frustration, waiting for our number to be called at the DMV. We're controlled by our perception of time rather than being filled with the peace of God. But when we've been changed, when we've been given peace with God, we no longer have to get agitated and annoyed by every delay, but rather we can wait calmly on God's better timing. We remember that God's clock is more accurate than our own and that we can trust in the goodness of our divine timekeeper. 
we can have patience instead of impatience. Number 11, when we come to faith, we can have the peace of purpose instead of aimlessness. We can have the peace of purpose instead of aimlessness. Without the peace of God, we are adrift, wandering, unsure of our footing, floating through life, seeking for we know not what. But instead of zigzagging, of tacking and chopping and changing my way through life, never knowing what I should do, having come to Christ, I now have a God-given purpose, an aim, indeed significance. Peace with God makes me into a son of God, which makes me into an eternal God giving me an eternal, God-glorifying, soul-quieting purpose. We can have the peace of purpose instead of aimlessness. Number 12. When we come to faith, we can have the peace of obedience rather than rebellion. The peace of obedience rather than rebellion. Disobedience results in chaos. Disorder. I think the more mature you are, and perhaps the older you are in life, the more you can see that. In our youth, we can think that we can commit a sin, and we can keep it in this little bubble where nobody else has to know, and it can be isolated from the rest of our life. But maturity sees that disobedience, even in one little pocket of area, will impact the rest of our life. It was true in the garden with Adam, and it's true in our lives. But just like disobedience necessarily brings chaos, obedience will result in harmony. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for us. Where there is true, heart-level, faith-fueled obedience, there will grow in your heart a peace that God uses to reward those that joyfully seek to follow the commandments of His Son. I can have peace, the peace of obedience, rather than the unrest of rebellion. Last one, number 13. When we come to faith, we can have the peace of identity rather than confusion. I can have the peace of identity rather than confusion. In a world that cannot tell the difference between male and female, I can have the peace of a God-given identity in Christ. I can know that I am no mistake. And that although my feelings might be mistaken, God's word is never so. God's word is a light in the world of confused darkness. And it reminds me that I am the son or the daughter of a king adopted into his family, loved by a benevolent father. I can find my identity in what he says about me and not what the world and not even what my fickle heart says about me. I can have the peace of identity rather than confusion. So as I close... The coming of God's peace, which was proclaimed on that night by a mighty army of angels, is also proclaimed to you tonight. There is good news of peace with God that can be yours if you would but come to Him in faith. Turn from your sins, embrace the calling of our God, and you too may have your soul freed from unrest and anxiety and enter into the glorious peace of God, a peace which surpasses all understanding. Let me pray.